Welcome to Rumor Flies, everybody. I'm Ryan. I'm Josh. And I'm Ryan. You're not. You're, you're Greg, and you're also not here. This is an honorary I Greg's know. not here, everybody. So, hey, listen. No, I got nothing. I thought I was going to call something clever, some sort of retort. I'm just tired. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I'm done. On the insides, I'm finished. <laughs> it's like you may see the calm veneer of a handsome, well-put-together man in front of you, but on the inside, I am death. Well, much like the intro to this show just turned out to be, this episode is about disasters. And <laughs> This fucking guy nice right segue. here. Nice segue. And uh, I don't know if we've done something to this cow. We kind of done stuff to this cow. We've kind of done weather. We've done <sighs> we've danced you know, survival. It. Yeah, it, and we've done some war stuff. We're gonna have a little bit of everything. We might even have some like who knows a brief mention of aliens or you know some really weird Serbian dude. Uh, that's gonna come up sooner than later. But uh, so I'm trying to get a feel of what we would say this episode is mainly based around. So far, to me, it's based around boats and celestial bodies. That end up being non-celestial bodies. And meteorites. That's exactly what I mean. <laughs> and meteorites. <laughs> Wait, what's a meteorite? Because <laughs> a meteorite's when it hits Earth. What the fuck's a meteorite? Um, it hits the sky? That, that's still a meteor. <laughs> Technically, they all hit the sky, don't they, Greg? Uh, play, anyway. Play crack the sky. Uh, once again, before we get into any topics, I just want to tell everybody, just go to, go to Threadless and buy some stuff. Nobody's bought the shower curtains yet, and nobody's bought the baby jumper, even though one person here has a kid already and is sitting right next to me and should have a baby jumper for his kid that says Rumor Flies on it. Yeah, Josh, you're looking around. I'm talking about you, fucker. Fuck. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll get on that. Okay. I'm just going to say my birthday's coming up. I'm just going to- I'll get one for there. my future spawn. <laughs> So, first topic that we're going to be talking about is uh, going to be of the meteor type. Uh, not meaning to kind of uh, give it away too much, but we're going to be talking about something called the Tunguska incident and whether Nikola Tesla blew up a part of Siberia. <laughs> uh, is that really what it's about? Uh, I, don't, I don't know anything about this. That's my favorite theory about it. I can give you a rundown of what this is. Greg, are you aware of the Tunguska incident whatsoever? No, I am not. But you also are like a wealth of all these like various I, I hate i don't mean like conspiracy theories but oh we can kind say of conspiracy like, theories it's fine so i'm a reformed conspiracy theorist i would say like i was all <laughs> about that shit when i was from like you know the age of 11 to 16 or 17 and i dug into all of that stuff of all sorts of versions and um looking back on it lots of conspiracy theorists are really anti-semitic but um <laughs> it, it, that's how it was in the above top secret forums. You don't say. It's weird. I don't get it. Um, Ryan would have been one of the people going to Area 51 if this was 15 years ago. Oh, I would have not thought it was a joke. Did that already happen or what? I don't know. I don't keep I feel up like Ryan, Ryan's the guy who would stop and go, wait, are we the baddies? <laughs> nice. Uh, it, it was funny, actually, just like to get to a certain level of it. You know, uh, I forgot what the whole internet theorem was, but like, Every um, internet conversation will, if given a long enough time, will end up with a comparison to Hitler. Yeah. Godwin's theory. Godwin's, yeah. Godwin's theory. That's it. I think there's one for conspiracy theories where if you give a forum post for a conspiracy theory a long enough time, it could be about aliens. It will always eventually end up with Jews. That's it. Uh, it's really weird and it's not fun and it's kind of uh, pushed me off of the whole thing a little bit. Um, not going to lie. But back to the T Tunguska incident. So let me give you a little rundown of what happened. On June 30th, 1908, 
7.14 to 7.17 a.m., depending on the sources, in the middle of Siberia. That's a pretty narrow window. I'm impressed. Wait, what's the time frame? 7.14 a.m. to 7.17 a.m. Okay. Sorry. I thought you... Never mind. Keep going. Sure. Uh, So... (laughs) (laughs) Math hard, numbers bad. So, uh, around this time, a bright blue light was seen streaking across the sky, about as bright as day. And then about 10 minutes later, the citizens around this remote spot in Siberia heard a giant artillery explosion. And shortly after that, the night sky lit up as bright as day. People were knocked off of their chairs or off of their feet even, and windows were broken up to about 70 to 100 miles away. Did we nuke the moon? We did not mook, nuke the moon, okay? Uh, we did the not mook the noon. That's what I'm calling my sex life now. Mook the noon. Uh, shortly after, oh, my goodness. <laughs> shortly after that, what happened was there was three days of complete light in the night sky all the way to report, like reportedly all the way to Scotland where people could read their newspapers or take photographs without a flash at midnight. Like it happens in Alaska and stuff like that, which is daytime for like 24 hours. Yeah, except it was across all of Eurasia. Right, right. right. Well, I mean, yeah, but just as an example. Um, it was this immense explosion and nobody had an explanation for it for a while until and this being such a remote region. It did, word of this didn't get out too, too fast, except for the fact that it went off on Richter scales even in New York. But really? it wasn't. Like, it's proven it went off on Richter scales. It registered as like a 5.0 earthquake. Whoa, okay. That's uh, nuts. So. Fast forward. I didn't realize this was like actually an event. Okay. Yes. Fast forward about 11 years later and a couple of explorers, I believe the guy's name was Kilik. I can't, uh, Kulig is the guy's name. He was an explorer that went out to investigate Kulig? this. Kulig. Uh, that went Kulig? to. <sighs> Kulig. <laughs> uh, he went to investigate this area in Tunguska. And what happened was he found a giant crater that was about the size of London. It was about 800 million trees they said were knocked down in a radial form and then a bunch of trees in the middle were standing up completely scorched it was ridiculous it was this giant explosion at least three people have been accounted to have died from this the thing is nobody can really explain what it was Malnor? what it was not Mjolnir showing up oh. no <laughs> That'd be really weird if like Thor makes his first appearance um, and just I think he mispronounced <laughs> awesome. And has just a few civilian casualties, just like, whoops, sorry. Oh, by the way, I'm a superhero. Well well, just to clarify, so nobody gets mad. It's it's male Thor, not Jane Foster Thor. Oh hi, hey now. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm pushing hot buttons. Cancel. Odin's son. <laughs> so pretty much uh, wait, uh, real I gotta stop you right there. <laughs> Is that what some people on the internet are saying? What? Oh yeah, no. They got super mad when it was announced. No, they, at Natalie Portman they, did they use Odin's son as oh, like yeah. example? Oh, oh no, no. God. His name is no. His name is actually. Well, I know, Odin's but son. like in example of why they would not have Jane Foster Thor. No, no, no. Their I've, issue no, I've is seen that, that argument. Thor can only be Thor, not realizing that the hammer is Thor. Like they, they, their complaint isn't he has to be Odin's son. They're saying no one else can be Thor but Thor. And I'm like, well, we've literally had other people who were Thor who were not named who were not Odin's, Odin's son. son. 
So it's complete bullshit. But no, that's I, a whole other discussion. Like I've, Beta Ray Bill, yes, we'll get to that. I've also seen arguments for Odin's son. I have indeed seen that. That's the Adam and Eve, not ha- Adam and Steve argument for comic books. <laughs> kind of. That's ridiculous. <laughs> kind that's of. amazing. That's, uh, that's, that's actually pretty uh, accurate. Long story short, if you got the hammer, then you're the blammer. So anyway, getting back to Tunguska. There is speculation that the only thing that could have st- uh, happened with this is a million different things. <laughs> the only thing is a million different things. <laughs> it has been anything from a meteor, which is reasonable, and which is what I'm putting my you know cards in. Okay. Then they also had anything from a uh, a giant gas leak from the Earth that rose up about 200 kilometers in the atmosphere and exploded and had this radial uh, explosion uh, to an alien spaceship crashing to let's see what else oh yeah the one i want to talk about the most see alien crashing final answer nikola tesla's death ray we've brought this up before (gasps) full circle baby yeah this is what a lot of people like to uh attribute the tunguska incident to mainly because uh in many of the expeditions that went out to and number one like i said in 19 in 1921 they first got pictures of this whole blast crater it wasn't in 1908 when it originally happened now there are pictures out there to see today oh yeah from, completely okay. devastated uh and anyway it is speculated that nikola tesla was working on something called the Telluray. i want to say it was called but they changed to nikola tesla's death ray it was this certain uh item that he said would be a weapon of peace because it would be a stalemate essentially that would prevent all countries from being able to have an upper hand against any other country because he wanted to ideally give it to all of them so they couldn't fight each other. This thing would just be able to shoot anything out the sky with a very concentrated energy uh, along a direct path. So not exactly a ray, he said, but kind of just like a place where to blow something up at. Quick little side note that's interesting about that theory and like why it sounds like mutually assured destruction is that number one, obviously the atomic age was not the beginning of that concept, but also um, previously when airships essentially, you know, when we had like the, um, uh, what would you call the the rigid air balloons or whatever the hell you call them, right? Like the, the Hindenburg and all that. Zeppelins. God, sorry, I could not think of the word. Um, they when those came out, there was all these theories like, oh my god, these things will just level cities. They'll just fly over and drop bombs everywhere. No one will ever go to war again. This like kept happening during that era. So it's actually really interesting to hear Tesla talk about that. Yeah, the idea of mutually assured destruction was, I, th- I would say, it even went back to the plague almost. Yeah, um, but the, the the turn of the 20th century, like every single person was like theorizing some technological advancement would make war impossible because we'd all die. Yes. And it's lasted till today. But pretty much uh, even a good note saying the, you know, the atomic bomb testings and everything, because after that happened, everybody threw that into the fold that the Russians were way ahead of the game on nuclear testing. It sounds I even familiar. saw something of a time traveling A-bomb. Like that some people had said. It goes way out the way. Okay. But the Tesla one is one a lot of people like to grab onto because mainly this blast site did not have any meteor fragments that anybody could find, uh, even up until recent times, pretty much. And just to kind of debunk this shit real quick, uh, Tesla didn't talk about that death ray until about 1934. And in 1937, I think he was oh, talking to a Yugoslavian envoy and he said, oh yeah, I can tell you about this whole invention that I have and I've even had it ready for testing and everything. It's all ready to go. I've done tests with it and everything. But that's 1937, supposedly, you know, a couple of years after he got funding for this thing, supposedly. It's very wishy-washy and where that happened. But there was no mention of him talking about this. And in the letter from 1934... He was talking specifically about getting the funds to get this going. He said, I have all the moving parts ready. I just haven't put them together. They all conceptually work. It's just not ready yet. So this thing theoretically wasn't even 
it was never built in the first place. Okay. There was never a record of Tesla having a completed death ray. But at the same rate, he said that he still needed time to build it in 1934. This happened in 1908. So this is anachronistic at the very least. Mm -hmm. People just like to attach Tesla's name to mysterious spooky dooky stuff. Now, a much more salient and uh, what makes sense to me explanation of this whole situation is that it was a meteor a very big meteor to say the least but one like i said the blast size is about the size of london it could have cleared out an entire metropolitan area well what i want to know is that when you mentioned not finding meteor fragments then why is why are your cards in the meteor camp so there's a few things to talk about here that okay. are very interesting uh number one if you look at the pictures of the blast site yes there is a giant like outer radius of just trees blown out in an outward direction okay. however all the trees in the middle of the entire blast radius are standing up still but completely charred this suggests that and there was recent computer modeling in the recent uh 2010s and uh, a couple more things that i'll elaborate on that have shown what would happen if there was a meteor or a comet that exploded about 15 miles above the Earth's surface, like right when it hits the atmosphere. It's coming in that hot mm -hmm. that as soon as it hits some sort of air resistance, it's going to blow up. Like okay. it just loses all its energy. It just expends all its energy just exploding. That would just make this giant circle. And if you're thinking about force, it would go straight down. It wouldn't, you know, smush the, uh, the trees like a Looney Tunes hammer. It would just char everything off of them, which is what everything suggests right there. Okay. And there is also the fact that that whole thing of the daylight for three days, there is a postulate that a lot of people have brought together that when uh, something in the air explodes like that or there's some high intensity heat, ice particles will be dispersed throughout the air and they will refract light wherever they are dispersed. This supposedly happened across the atmosphere and that's exactly what would happen with the three days of daylight. And this has been demonstrated by the space shuttles. Ah. So that kind of brings the, everything together as like a proof of concept afterwards, after the fact. Um, lastly, they were talking about how, you know, there were some certain models to compare it to. Well, in 2013, two very important things happened. The world didn't end in 2012. Is that one of them? That is one of them. Okay, good. All right. So what happened in 2013 is that there was another airburst above. Uh, this is me trying to pronounce Russian. Chelyabinsk uh, in the Ural district of Russia. That sounds very Russian, so it sounds correct to me. Wait, spell it? Uh, C-H-E-L-Y-A-B-I-N-S-K. Man, that's a weird Scrabble game. But yeah. Chelyabinsk, I mean, like, it's. I'm sure someone would say my accent was terrible. But yeah, that's. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's how you'd pronounce it. Good job. Cool, cool. thank you. Uh, so this was only about 17 to 20 meters across. We're talking about at least, like, a 200-foot meteor when the Tunguska one happened. But anyway, they were about they were comparing it to Tunguska and it was much less of an incident. I mean, people were hurt in this, many more people were. There were over, over 1200 injuries. Oh. Nobody died, but at the same rate there were tons of broken glass falling everywhere. And the most interesting part about it is that the blast impact looked the, about the exact same as it did with Tunguska with like some spots in the direct uh. center not being as affected or blown outwards as others because it was an airburst. Not only that, in 2013, they found fragments that are still up for testing at the moment that might confirm that it was indeed a meteor. So what is preventing them from running those tests? 
Oh, it just takes time comparing uh, carbon dating and whatnot. Okay, uh, and that's what I was going to ask was if, if they were using carbon dating because that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know the exact test, but I would assume carbon dating would be one of the main things that they would be using. Um, so just as a little reference for how big this event was, I, I told you it could have wiped out you know, a city the size of London. This was about 10 to 15 megatons at the very least. Now they're putting it at about 20 to 30 megatons. That's a lot. Which is well over a thousand times the Hiroshima bomb. Yeah. You know what the crazier part is? It would still be about a third to a half of something called the Tsar Bomba, which, Greg, are you aware of it? I've heard this oh, before. Oh, I am very well aware of the Tsar Bomba. You want to explain it a tiny bit? Um, I'm pretty sure it was the single largest thermonuclear weapon ever created and detonated, correct? Yes. And as far as I know, they had to dial it down a bit in order to actually drop the bomb and not have a carrier destroyed. Where was this done at? This was done in the 60s in Russia. Oh, okay. There's videos of it. It is something extremely terrifying. That was, I don't remember where it was, but I can tell you right now, 99% chance it happened in the Soviet Union. Definitely not within Russia's boundaries. <laughs> oh, that's actually a very good point. <laughs> I would say there's a very you know, I don't want to get my geography. I'm correct on that. <laughs> I don't want to mess up my geography with Russia and Ukraine or whatever, you know, because apparently people get upset about that, you know. You're right, though. I was wrong. Spicy. So, um, that's enough. No, I'm not talk- even saying you're wrong. I have no idea where it detonated. Yeah. I just think it's incredibly likely they detonated it outside of Russia proper's borders. I, I think that's a fair <laughs> assumption. Uh, so let's go ahead and move on. I talked long enough about that. Josh, what you got? My first topic I'm going to be covering this episode. I almost gave us a timestamp, but I didn't do it. Uh, a meteor wiped out the dinosaurs. Now, I'm going to ask you both. I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but... Ryan, have you heard that the dinosaurs died due to a meteorite? I heard it was Nikola Tesla's death ray. Uh, oh, I, I hate you. Greg? Um, I heard they died sacrificing themselves while protecting us from the asteroid menace. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say that they died remembering the Alamo, which I would have actually deemed correct. But Oh, man. No, it was a, a good one. It was a Damn. dinosaur summoning ritual. They were all around a circle that took a long time from the draw due to their tiny arms. Oh. But, yeah. <laughs> they plugged in a USB plug correct the first time i see that's just lies look at you you little techie millennial (laughs) so anyway josh what you got um so yeah this is something that has been uh theorized and talked about for a long long time for the record yes i have heard of this and i heard that it struck somewhere near the yucatan peninsula okay that's the only thing i know about it no you're 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 on the money okay Um, you're right on the money uh, and Which, by the way, would you say he is, shit on your topic? I, I, no. I would absolutely say. Does that the Yucatan sound cold, by the way? Because I always thought that it was around Alaska or no. <laughs> I, I know wow. where it is now. I know where it is now. I know it's. I'm not going to give him hell. I'm sure I've done very similar mess no, ups. I, I, I just I love I just love like the like innocence in your tone. No, it's it's wonderful <laughs> because for those of you who don't know, the Yucatan Peninsula is not in Alaska. It's in fucking Mexico. <laughs> so it's a, it's a little different. The, <laughs> <laughs> just a bit, just a little bit. Uh, the Yukon, you know, is that in Alaska? Uh, no, I get what you're saying. No, the, the no, it sounds it, like a cold place. It sounds like some place that's covered in an igloo. No, like, I feel I, like there's somewhere with an igloo and there's a dude with like a fucking beaver hat named Yucatan Dan and he's just like chopping logs or some shit. Oh, the patron saint of room of flies, Yucatan Dan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, back back to <laughs> the topic at hand. 
<laughs> fucking Yucatan Dan. Uh, so um, this is season one star room of flies. I'm uh, going I mean, to are, say uh, for those of you who are interested, please look out for our threadless shop. Uh, Yucatan Dan shirt is coming your way sometime <laughs> oh, soon. Christ. It's going to be a flannel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wait, it's going to be a flannel poncho <laughs> just to mix the both of the worlds. He probably had a Paco. Oh, no. Oh, okay, okay, okay. We lost blah, 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 blah. him. Okay. Um, what I was going to say was is that I'm sure a lot of people have, heard, have had this theorized that a meteorite has come down and wiped out all the dinosaurs, and it is part of the reason why we don't have Chris Pratt talking to raptors uh, in, in reality. So Part of the reason. Yeah, part of the reason. So the meteor that is being uh, talked about here in most cases uh, is... And I'm going to butcher this, so forgive me. Uh, is the meteor that caused the Chicxulub crater in Mexico? Okay, you're gonna have to spell that one out because I want to give a shot at it. C H I C X U K U B. I'm sorry. C H I C X U L U B. Chicxulub, I think. Uh, well, okay. but yeah, I'm close. Anyway, it's in Mexico on, uh, underneath the Yucatan Peninsula. So you see, kids, something massive here hit Earth about 66 million years ago, and it killed about 75% of everything on Earth. I would say the population, but um, I'm including all plant life, all animal life, everything. About 75% of it was wiped wiped away. Uh, And one, one thing that I found interesting was that what was not included in this was all was all non-flying dinosaurs. So if it was a flying dinosaur, it had a shot to survive. I think I have an idea of why specifically, but also I'm going to ask you, I guess what we should elaborate on is, did the impact itself kill all the dinosaurs? That's what I think we need to focus on right okay. there. Okay, no, we're going to definitely dive into that. <laughs> and the answer is yes and no. Well, it didn't kill all of them, I guess, then. No, so well, I'm also going to get into that as well. But basically, the impact did kill a lot of dinosaurs. It didn't kill every dinosaur, okay? And I'm going to expand on that in a minute. Just let me keep going, okay? Um, and what was very interesting is just a couple days ago, actually, NASA, yes, that NASA, published an article saying that a mega tsunami would have also likely resulted from the impact of the meteor. So that was a byproduct of it crashing down, which is another way that a lot of life on Earth died. So sure, it so like landed a bunch in the water? Secondary disasters. Yes, there is a bunch of secondary disasters. But was that right? It landed in the water? No, it hit It hit around the Yucatan Peninsula and it Oh, the shock wave. That shock wave and the power would just be, you know, it's got to go somewhere. Yes, exactly. So what you have here is something hitting the ground, everything getting really hot like an inferno, and then cooling off. See, the tsunami would have cooled off the ground quickly because it is believed to have been several hundred feet high, like the size of Florida. Oh, okay. Potentially the size of Florida, that high. Um, That was some estimations that I read, but... Let's see Dennis Quaid survive that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but at the very least it was several hundred feet high i mean it was it was massive 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 um and so what you have here is these environments going from very hot to cold and these animals and these plants and all this life on earth couldn't sustain such a dramatic shift in temperatures so rapidly and that totally makes sense when you go from hot to cold cold to hot back and forth like that it's never good for your body well not only that uh i'm assuming that most of the animals at least the higher forms of life there were still cold-blooded yeah. this is before the uh 
genesis of mammals, rather. Right, exactly. So, yeah, thank you. I was actually going to get into that. But yes, you're exactly right. Um, it blasted so The much- reason why that's important is because of body temperature regulation. Yeah. I, I should have elaborated on oh, that part. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, it blasted so much dust into the air that it actually blocked out the sun, kind of like... See, that's what I was thinking right there. That would kill all the plant life, pretty much, right? Right. Okay. That's exactly right. Um, and another recent article compared the effect to 10 atomic bombs similar to Little Boy and Fat Man used in World War II. Are we going to have like a reference to the nukes in just about every one of our topics? I was going to say, can we just do a nuclear bombs myths episode? <laughs> like, I think we can just get that niche at this point. Talk about broken arrows. That'd be fun. Uh, yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. I would. That's a Patreon, dude. We got to yeah, do that. that that'd would, be fun. Yeah. That'd be awesome. But that's just, I mean, it's a really easy point of reference, I think, for people to visualize and see like the destruction of that and be like, oh, yeah, it was 10 of those at one time. And I think it happened in the year. Patreon.com slash rumor flies, everybody. <laughs> if you want to hear this episode, it looks like it's going to happen now. Um, so on to the semantics of this. And this is kind of where you get nitpicky and that's why I don't like it. But I, I have to give it its fair justice. So did it kill all the dinosaurs? No. Did it kill a lot of the dinosaurs? Most definitely. And one way it was described very elegantly by one researcher was that we fried them and then we froze them right after one another. Okay, so it's like a Cisco method. <laughs> this guy. Yeah, that that's... Uh, I can't disagree with that. Uh, so to say this was the biggest reason why the dinosaurs died out is probably correct, but we won't actually know for certain at least not right now we don't have enough information yet they're still doing a lot of testing they've been digging up a lot of rocks at the crash site a lot of the uh, debris and they've been digging down like several several hundred feet to get a better analysis of everything that's going on seeing the sulfur content and all kinds of other things like that some really scientific stuff that's insane to me to think that we have pinpointed the spot that changed life forever on the planet and pretty much opened up uh, the path to our existence. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's such a, it, that's technically the cradle of life for us. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And it's such a weird concept to think that uh-huh. like, because of this one massive meteor coming down and just wreaking havoc that we are here today talking into a microphone. And I, that is not completely fair because an ice age could have still happened without the, uh, without the meteor, I assume. Sure, sure. Maybe. I don't know enough about that. I am not a meteorologist. I am not a geologist. I'm not a whole lot of things here. But at the same rate, it's just one of the things that that's one of those pinnacle events that happened, what, millions and millions and millions of years ago? This was about 66 million billions years ago. Billions and billions. Not billions. We're not, even, we're not even 10 billion years old. We ain't even double digits for billions yet. I just really wanted to sagan it up, all right? Mm-hmm. Sue me. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, the, the last thing I'm going to cover is the, to say that this was the biggest reason why dinosaurs died out is probably correct. But again... You can't say with 100% certainty that, that you know, you pinpoint and say this is the reason why. There's just no way of being absolutely certain. And there are other, ev- there are other events that also happened along the way that could definitely contribute to the death and the demise and destruction of dinosaurs. Oh, the devil hid the bones to play tricks on us. Oh, I've heard that one before. Yep. I have not. Wait, what? Really? No. Oh, that's a uh, that's a that's a that's a fundy thing. That's a big fundamentalist creationist thing where really? they're just like the devil planted the bones there to deceive us into thinking of a non-younger theory. I mean, I got the concept of it, but that's I, I guess I shouldn't comment on that. Um, well, the sun's <laughs> so hot because the devil lives in it. Yeah. You've heard that before. <laughs> oh, no, I have not. But I see the logic. OK, so the sun is evil anyway. Um, so things that that contribute to it. Volcanoes erupting, 
changing sea levels, uh, other extraterrestrial encounters or definite, definite possibilities as to why Littlefoot from Land of Four Time is not our drinking buddy on the weekends. You know, um, there's just Bruh. what I wasn't ready for that. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Should I give a trigger uh, warning? Are you ready for what happened to Ducky's <laughs> voice actor? Don't look up that. <laughs> Uh, so there's a lot of different stuff going out there, but there was in fact a meteorite that hit, you know, around the Yucatan Peninsula about 66 million years ago. That is 100% fact. It definitely did a lot of havoc and uh, uh, destruction in its pathway, and there's a good chance that it killed off a lot of the dinosaurs and the plant life in the process. But to give an exact number uh, and to say that it is killing all the dinosaurs is I, you can't you know rumor flies gun to my head it is not true have we wait have we ever discussed the end of dinosaurs holy on shit dude i just wanted to talk to you i was that was on the tip of my tongue i was gonna <laughs> let josh finish and finish that yeah that was the ultimate like pivot. i think this is okay we've been really tangential uh, tangential tangential i am so tired today and it is uh the 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 dinosaurs thing i think is worth taking a quick like 60 seconds ryan do you want to i'm gonna let you have this imagine if uh you're watching married with children and on the last episode a man runs in with a gun and shoots all of them except he shoots everyone in the town that's what happened in dinosaurs it ended with the fucking meteor impact no i thought it was no no it was the ice age Oh yeah, no, sorry. No, no, you read the yeah, ice it age. was the ice age. Yeah, yeah it was the. Ice so age. so it's not quite as violent as everyone being shot, but it is like okay, everyone dies of chlorine gas. Imagine like, Al Bundy <laughs> starving to death in the last episode around his kids. Like, <laughs> that's honestly, yeah, it's like horrific. It's like they they are all broke and they're like evicted from their homes and die on the streets. Have or, you seen Grave of the Fireflies? It's kind of <laughs> like that. <laughs> Don't make me laugh at that shit, dude. Oh man, uh, dude! It literally ends with the ice age. The dad is trying to keep the kids calm and say everything's gonna be okay, as he knows they're all gonna die because his company polluted the world so much it started an ice age. What the ever living fuck? Man, they were woke before woke. So, um, I, I'm, I think, I'm, I'm, I think we we're done just, here. Yeah, I think <laughs> we're we done. Just keep going. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I am having an editing disaster right now with myself. I'm just like so many like wheels are turning in my head right now. Of like, what can I keep in form from this episode? This is where conspiracy Ryan gets reborn. <laughs> oh God. my goodness! So <laughs> we're talking about kamikaze pilots next. <laughs> we're really toning it down a little bit. Really, really bringing it down to earth, guys. We're just what oh God, better? That was, I like did not, said, oh, that was bad. Ooh, that was not intentional. Oh, Predictive. Dude. This episode about disasters is a fucking disaster. Oh, oh my God. So uh, we're going to be talking about whether the kamikaze pilots were boozed up and sealed in their cockpits. And additionally, whether their landing gears were made to fall off as soon as they took off. I have heard both of these things. You d- you have? Uh, uh, Greg, you want to give a little bit of a yours? I have heard variations like i like i look at this and it all looks familiar but i couldn't say it word for word but i've heard i've heard um they didn't have enough gas to get back yes like enough fuel i've right. definitely heard that one um i've heard they i know i've heard they take shots i i haven't heard that they're like drunk drunk um sealed well, no, cockpits landing no. gears i'm not sure but the beat the drinking before and not enough fuel to get back those are two i definitely heard yeah 
so yeah, there's just variations that that there was a commitment when they did this. That's a that's a very elegant way to put it. Josh, what have you heard from it? Yeah, I've definitely heard that they were boozed up beforehand. I mean, I don't think. I guess I just assumed when they say they were drinking, I never assumed that they were completely inebriated because they still have to fly a plane. Yeah. To, to a specific point. So I don't think that, you know. We talking about airline pilots do it all the time. Well, I, I was, the flight was running through my head with Denzel. I was, oh my so. God. I was wondering if we were going to reference that. <laughs> uh, good movie. I, I actually enjoyed it. I was it. surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Yeah. Same, same here. Um, I also heard that the thing about the guy. What? <laughs> Should we change this topic to was Denzel Washington a kamikaze pilot? <laughs> oh my goodness. Hey man, he got game. That's all I'm going to say. He got game. Um, I've, I've also heard that about the low fuel, um, or not having enough fuel to come back. Uh, it was one way trip. And I have also heard that there was certain parts of their plane planes, not put in working order because they just weren't concerned with the planes coming back. Yeah. Mm, that makes uh, sense. And those are fair things to think about. Um, I have I heard never, those I never thought about well. that, that, yeah, the upkeep would be very minimal, like just get it in the air. Yeah, fucking duct tape and paper clips, bubblegum. Let's go, baby. And this brought me down kind of like a horrifying but very interesting rabbit hole to me because it's really like um, I, we try not to make light of too much loss of human life on this podcast, but occasionally it's just we like to be as laid back as possible with some of these things. Um, but really, this whole topic revolves around the idea of desperation, national and familial honor, yeah. and then ultimately rudimentary guided missile systems. Um, sure. So the kamikaze, do you guys know what it means by any chance? Divine wind. Very good, Greg. Uh, it's stemming from the typhoons that push back Hoopla Sorry, Khan's I didn't even fleet. give Josh a chance to respond there. <laughs> I, I didn't know it. It's okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. You're awarded one bullet and the rumor flies gone. There we um, go. So pretty much it was stemmed originally from the term that was given to the typhoons that pushed back Kublai Khan's fleet in 1274 and oh, pretty much saved Japan. Nice. Okay. Uh, from the Mongol invasion. Uh, so... To start off, this was not exactly a new idea. I know that aviation was in its uh, baby phases at this point in World War II, even in World War II. I mean, they did have, you know, dogfights in World War I, but they weren't nearly as um, uh, strategic or tactical or as involved as in World War II. Well, that's absolutely true. And I guess the other thing, too, is more with World War II than... And it's not a new concept to, to Japanese culture, but is that... Um, that self-sacrifice for the greater good, that um, that commitment to patriotism, to your country, to your family, to your people and those around you like that has always been very rooted within their culture. So that is not a new concept, but it never I mean, at least to me and the way it appears to me that that never had such significance as it did as really the kamikaze pilots within World War II as they've been depicted. Yeah, so keep that in mind in your head when we're talking about this, especially with like the cockpits being sealed shut, you know, and all these fail-safes to make sure that they ain't coming back. Right. Uh, I really want to elaborate on this idea of, in a lot of uh, Eastern cultures, and this is just the generalization, especially as you go more back in time, that's when it becomes more of a prudent general generalization, where it's... Uh, the idea of one for all, right. as opposed to a kind of a more Western ideal is the individualism of, right. the, per of the self, you know? Right. 
so with that going, this was not a new idea. And once again, before the official kamikaze units were actually established, uh, both Allied and Axis pilots have been reported to actually commit suicide themselves into enemy units if their planes were damaged badly enough. I mean, what else are you going to do if you're about to go down? You know, at some point I, I you might it. be amped like... up on adrenaline. Um, there was even a recording before Pearl Harbor uh, of a Japanese pilot saying that he would crash into a ship if his plane was already damaged badly enough. And according to most sources, he did it. He followed through with it. And uh, so that shows that it's not a new concept whatsoever. Someone was just like, man, what if we just, you know, fucking ran the planes into him or anything like that? It's just it's a thing of desperation that last minute. Might as well make yourself useful if you're already going to die, I guess. I mean, it was basically drones before drones were a thing. You know, instead of using artificial intelligence, you're using human life instead. Oh, that that could be boiled down to any military. Well, if I'm going to get that fucking political, right. but you know, I, well, no, no, I didn't, I didn't mean it yeah. in that regard. But what I'm meaning is, you know, they didn't have the technology to do this remotely. So they figured, you know, this is the next best thing. Yeah. So going with that, uh, this is the first time it was just like completely healthy, not like, you know, pilots were being used for this where they weren't about to die, except for the fact that they're about to send themselves to their own death intentionally. Right. Um, the program was brought to prominence after the Battle of the Philippine Sea in 1944, uh, around June, uh, where about 400 Japanese planes were lost to the U.S. Navy due to, number one, being outclassed and outnumbered, partially thanks to the development of the Hellcat and Corsair fighters on the Allied side, right. particularly America. Uh, the famous Japanese Zero fighter, which is undoubtedly a very uh, iconic plane, uh, it was becoming obsolete at that point. This is about nineteen forty three. Yeah, beginning of the war, it was a it was a menace. It was like a little mosquito that could zip around you. But the moment like the Allies really started to develop their air force, it it did be very quickly become obsolete. Uh, that problem with it being the mosquito, like you said, was that. Uh, it was weak. It's weak armoring pretty much led to the planes becoming flying fireballs once they were hit by only a few machine gun bullets. That little, really? Yeah. They wow. did not take well to initial damage. They were hmm. kind of like glass cannons. They were, they were they were there to hit fast and hit hard and then just get out of there. They could not take much. And then when you have yeah. other planes that come in that are meant to overtake them and you have an entire military industrial complex that can build the planes that can take them, you're up shit's creek. Well, without being super nerdy and like every guy our age played Call of Duties and Medal of Honor games, we all know like every gun from World War II. But uh, as far as American planes go, the usual rule of thumb is can it get bigger and can we add more guns? Like that, it's yeah. it just by the end, you had these flying, they literally had what the, the terminology, there's a class of plane called flying, flying fortress. fortress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they would literally just be bristling with guns. <laughs> and this was such a upset for the Japanese that this battle was also known by the allies as the great Mariana's Turkey shoot. Oh, that's how one sided this was or lopsided rather. Ooh, Wow. Uh, at this point, Captain Motuharu Okamoto proposed that he be given a unit of 300 planes to do dive bomb attacks in order to both instill fear in the Allies and then hopefully change the tide of the war at this point. That's really smart. I I, I, I hate to be well, that guy. It, but was, I, it was a last minute thing. It was not I only that. It. it was a two front thing. It was meant to be psychological warfare as right. well because it would instill fear and show the aggression of the Japanese Navy and Air Force. Well, absolutely. If you think about it this way, you're like, okay, we're going to take them down. And then you re- when you realize that, oh, when I shoot them down, that's not the end. The end is when they come crashing towards me. Exactly. Like, it ain't over and if you just see them dive by. Exactly. It's just, you still have stuff to worry about and stuff that they're not going to be 
discouraged from. Well, and it's kind of and to kind of go back a little bit further. I mean, war used to be a thing of gentlemen, you know, so this this is such an obsolete construct for such a long time. You know, I think a lot of people like to say war used to be for gentlemen, but I honestly think if you look no, at a lot of historical wars, it I, never was. I, no, no, I he, he means that. he means yeah. there's like the he, he's talking about. I, I get what you meant, Josh. Like, you're not literally saying like, Only no, gentlemen, wage no, war, no, no, and everyone no. just exchanged swords. No, that like it had this ambiance and had this whole this reputation of honor and, and yes, you, and you, you, there's some unpleasantness and then you exchange swords and land. Right. And you get, and when you surrender, you, you dress up in your best garments and you present your sword. Like it was a whole ordeal. And then that, there was world war one. Well, exactly. And so now, but this strays <laughs> so that. far away from that though. And that's, and that is what's frightening. Well, if we want to do a little bit of a side tangent real quick, like I guess what I see what you're saying, because uh, Greg, you can elaborate on this in a little bit more, I think. But the very first battle of the Civil War, if I'm correct, there were people having picnics on the sidelines thinking that this was going to yes. be an even-sided match turned oh, yeah. into a it's, giant I, bloodbath. But, I've heard the picnic thing. I'm not positive on that. We should check that out, actually. That'd be a good myth. But be. um, but the but the, the long and short was that the Civil War, yeah, and in a lot of ways, the the nickname in a lot of history circles, that Civil War was the the um, prequel to World War One. That like they didn't have quite the level of tech and machinery and weapons of horror yet, but we could mass produce. Like right. we we could kind of produce stuff at a really big scale, and we did have a lot of people, so it was utterly horrific, and it was a taste of what was to come. But then when you think of just like that's what I'm saying, why I don't think it was ever truly gentlemanly because it was like always the face of it, and then the one that ends up winning is the one that has the better tech at that point. Civil War, for example. They thought it was going to be a pretty even-sided thing. One side, two sides. Then one of them shows up with a fucking armored boat. And then they have to, like, keep <laughs> yeah. exchanging no, stuff but like I, that. but again, I don't think Josh was literally saying, like, no, I know, chill. I know. But just, like, but uh, then World War One, where chill, bro. <laughs> you have Ottomans on horses with swords as a cavalry charge, and then there's a machine gun at the end of the hill, and that's it. That's that. Well, no, it, yeah. but what I mean is, like, you know, cool it, used, poem, though. It, it used to be... Uh, it used to be like, okay, they fire, then we fire, then Wait, they fire, then the, we fire. Was the charge of the light brigade about that? I I think it's about I always assumed it was. Okay. Uh, you know what? The charge of light brigade actually no, 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 no. It does predate World War One. Okay. Okay. Might so, be. Sorry. So, we are goddamn, we are all over the place. I'm gonna let you continue, Ryan. It's fine. No, I did it myself. Uh so the initial runs here were mildly successful. And I'll also say that these this guy, Captain uh Motoharu Okamura, was actually granted these retrofitted zeros. And by retrofitted, I mean that they took out what little armoring they actually had. And they took away the machine guns in order to fit larger fuel tanks and heavier bombs onto it so they could drive it straight into a ship. These initial runs were mildly successful, I would say. Uh, But it turns out that the Zeros weren't only outdated fighters, they were also kind of shitty bombs. And they were shitty bombs because if you think about the fact of uh, bombs usually don't require training in order to fly them. You just drop them. Fair. These Japanese Zeros were still state-of-the-art technology at the time for the Japanese, and it required, you know, experienced pilots in order to actually... Uh, get these things where you need to be, regardless if it wasn't exactly landing them. And the production of Zeros was still costly. So, as a response to that, this is something I didn't know about. Uh, the Yokosuka MXY7 Oka, or also known as the Cherry Blossom uh, Bomber, was created. And this was specifically for kamikaze pilots. So they had their own dedicated plane. It was about a 20-foot glider that was carried by a bigger bomber that was then released, with a pilot inside of it to glide the bomb quote-unquote into an enemy target uh so they had rocket boosters that were faster than zeros on it 
And also, the pilots had no need to learn how to take off or land the damn thing. They would just go straight into it. They would just have to be able to learn how to aim it. So it reduced training time a whole lot. Um, and I know we're gonna, I, we still haven't addressed all things that this myth is about, but I think this is important for it. Uh, there were also piloted torpedoes as well, except they weren't so great due to the fact that you, when you're in a, you know, piloted torpedo, same thing for a submarine, you're only working on like a little, you're in a little tiny metal boat right. underwater right. and you don't have eyes to work with. Yeah. Okay. So you have to only use like equipment after they launch you to kind of figure out where that boat is. However, they kept up production because the first time they like launched these, there was such a big explosion that the Japanese thought that they had taken out five ships at once of the allies. Whoa. They took out one. Oh. Yeah. So it pretty much turned out to be, they were just like, oh, that was fucking awesome. Let's make more of those. Turns out it didn't work as well as they thought. Um, but by the end of the war, which is exactly when the kamikaze program ap- happened, it went all the way to the end. Like, they didn't think that this was a bad idea whatsoever. By the end of the war, here are the numbers. 2,800 kamikazes had died in the efforts to sink a total of 34 allied ships, damaged 368 other ships, and killed about 4,900 sailors on those ships combined. Now, that's a lot of numbers right there, but just for a better stat... Only 14% of the kamikazes actually made it past the machine gun barrage from the ships or the allied planes to actually hit the ship. And at that rate, only 8% of the ships that were hit actually sank. Okay, so I, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. And th- I just want to basically boil down to this. The way it's always been propagated, at least to me and my mind, was that it was so much more destruction than what it actually was. No, so if you look at the 14% actually hit and 8% of them actually sinking... Yeah, that's not a lot. This Zerg rush did not work. Really? So that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it is pretty insane. And I, I wasn't meaning to be disparaging with the Zerg rush or anything. I guess it would be kind of like uh, what in Command and Conquer Red Alert Three, just uh, sending the Libyan trucks into the. Uh, no, no, into no. The so base. Let's go back to the. Let's go back to the the, the, the Starcraft ones. I'm, I'm loving the Zerg rush references. <laughs> well, the Zerg rushes they didn't explode when they hit a base or anything like that, but they were pretty much sent in to die. Now. Let's get to the coercion part of it. Were they sealed in the cockpits? Were they drugged up and drunk until they were ready to do it? You know, and also, did they do this landing gear thing? Um, we're going to go ahead and just, I'm going to preface this with a story of a man named Takahiko Ena. Uh, he was one of the few survivors of the Kamikaze program. And there were survivors. That, that's why I'm, you cannot see listeners, but I am making a surprised face. Uh, the reason why is because the Zero was becoming obsolete and it was due to engine failures. On three different occasions, Enna went out to, uh, I think it's Ana actually, if I was going to try to pronounce it right. Ana went out three different times and either his engine didn't start uh, another time his engine didn't start and the second time they ended up landing in the water and him and his co-pilot had to swim over to safety to a different island. Okay. Where do you hear the problem there? The fact that they had to have some way to get out of the plane. Yes. So they had to have a parachute release or something. That means that the cockpits clearly weren't sealed well, of any yeah, sort. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise you'd just be splatting against the cockpit ceiling if you uh, did the parachute or the eject of some sort. Um, so... That clearly shows that it's not true, at least in most cases. Uh, I have not seen any records of it being welded in, but I will go into where I think it came from because I think it may have found an origin. Oh, okay. So pretty much let's get behind the idea of Bushido. 
Bushido is the, not ancient, but the old samurai code of honor. Mm -hmm. And this was very instilled in the Japanese thought, especially if you're in the army. Mm -hmm. To the point that these cherry blossom planes that I was talking about, those torpedoes, Mm -hmm. they actually had like a slot to put a samurai sword in the back of the seat. Really? Yes. Cool. Also, something that I did not mention is that the allies called these things baka bombs. Do you guys know what baka means in Japanese? No. It means idiot. Oh, uh, in the lightest terms. <laughs> so they were just dummy bombs, pretty much. Like they were just like, oh, these fucking idiots are running into us and shit like that. But most of them got shot down anyway. So that's why they called them baka bombs. Always had some very colorful descriptions in the army. So this idea of Bushido was instilled in the soldiers, and they had this national honor to themselves, and only also familial honor. So some examples from other survivors of these uh, kamikaze pilot programs that were that I read from one of them specifically talked about how he didn't want to die whatsoever pretty much like and even his mother wrote a letter saying to his father I'd never forgive you if he actually dies in a kamikaze incident like so this wasn't across the whole board it wasn't like it was widely accepted but when they had people volunteer and I say volunteer very strongly is they never shoved anybody by force into any of the planes as far as any of the records go really please somebody correct me but as far as I know it was complete volunteer program they asked specific people to do it And by a volunteer program, I mean they were sent a letter specifically that said, I am very enthusiastic about doing this. Yes, I will do this or no. Those are the three options. I don't know what happens if you pick the middle one or not. I, I was going to ask if there was a difference between yes and soft yes. Um, and so much I so, I actually don't know anything about. I, I I really don't know anything about the selection process or or what it took to be like. I actually never thought about qualified. it. Qualified. I'll tell you. But this. You get to a big question too. It's like when you're in the military hierarchy, how much are things actually a, a choice? But anyway. Well, and then and here's here's the follow up to that is that when you are selecting, I guess your candidates is the best way to put it. Is what qualities are you looking for? I was just going to get to that. Okay. Ooh. They went for their best pilots first. No shit. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Their first pilot was pretty much their best lieutenant that they had. He was 23, Why? newly married. So counterintuitive. <laughs> and he said that like he needed to be on it. Though apparently there was wait, a conflict. That, but wait, but wait, this makes no sense to me because the my understanding of it has always, I'm not saying you're wrong. I just, this is actually shocking to me because my understanding was it was not only out of desperation or resources, not only out of desperation because the war was going poorly, but also because they were desperate. Like they, they didn't have good soldiers anymore. Like that's a really shitty way of putting it. But my understanding was that their that quality. A lot of their veterans were dead. Well, you think about this. When you have your pilots. This is horrific. uh, They asked their best pilots to uh, volunteer first. And one of them went in. Like their supposed like ace pilot said, yeah, if you don't include me in this, you're an idiot. But apparently in in conflicting reports, he told reports at some point that it was a waste of his talents. So maybe he had a little change of heart. He still did it. Oh, okay. So he went through with it. But if you think about it this way, that when your planes are so obsolete that it doesn't matter how good your best pilot is, you're still probably going to get shot down. What best use can you make of those planes except for getting a direct hit with a, you know, flying bomb that you have control over? So I guess let me let me try to play devil's advocate here, Greg, because I agree this is so counterintuitive to what you would want to do in a real time strategic war setting. You need success. You need to show that you are capable of accomplishing this task. This is Bushido, the whole uh, the idea of, the, you know, one for all. Right. You are part of a larger system that is more than just you. So you need to send qualified, talented individuals who can accomplish this in-game, this mission, if you will. And by not being able to do that, um, by showing that even, you know, 
whoever you put in there can't do it. I mean, you're you're setting back the program, and that's not the purpose of it. Um, To continue on this, so yes, they not only had the first topic in a very long time. That's maybe just go like Jesus Christ. They not only had very willing volunteers. They picked their best pilots, and that shows that just like how there was no need to steal in a cockpit. Number two. That takes extra time. They were trying to send these people off. And to continue about the fuel tanks, yes, they would give them enough fuel to get to a long flight. But no, some did come back. If they didn't find the allied ships to bomb, uh, they'd, turn they would, they'd turn around, come okay, back. Okay, I say, can't believe I never thought of that. They it would say, occur to me. They would say, <laughs> point me back in another direction to another set of allied ships. Yeah. Because you're not guaranteed to find them every time. No, that totally makes I cannot, sense. I, I agree. cannot believe that never occurred to me. Like, yeah. like, like, what if you yeah. did a whole fucking bomber wing up, a whole kamikaze wing up, and they just don't find their target? I mean, that's like really bleak. Like, it okay, it's kind of funny, but well, it's kind of no. fucked up. No, and no, no, like, but <laughs> no, it is kind of funny because you're like, oh, I never considered the, that. No, the low fuel light just came on, and there's nothing fucking in sight. What am I gonna do? Well, you just well, sent out a whole fleet of like <laughs> PT boats to go pick up all your pilots who had to fall into the water. Jesus Christ! So they come back. Sorry, I couldn't kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> but um, tomorrow's a new day. Yeah, but oh not only that, God. let's get to the drunk this thing. This is so dark. Let's get to the drunk thing. There were these ceremonies that were happening for the Kamikaze pilots. This was seen sure. as a very great honor. I feel it was like her. it was a movie. Maybe it was the Pearl Harbor god-awful movie. That I feel like I've seen it depicted in movies, actually. So that didn't happen in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, this is 1944. But no, no, so, no, no, no. I'm talking about the movie. I'm talking yeah, about yeah, like, yeah. Like, like the movie doesn't have necessarily be historically accurate. It, it would make I'm sense saying, if they would do that. I feel like I'd saw... I have like an image of Japanese pilots shooting liquor before getting in their planes. There was a ceremony I, where they would even ha- they would either have tea or uh, or sake, depending on you know what was available at the time. They would do this whole ceremony oh, for the pilots on their you know final flight, and they would have other pilots like sometimes in the air assisting them over to their final destination, pretty much. And even those pilots that, like, their, you know, side guards that ensured they got there uh-huh. would eventually become kamikaze pilots themselves. So it yeah. fed into it. They were inspired by that shit sometimes, which yeah. is... Oh, wow. That's actually really interesting. a strange it's... psyche. But no, essentially, it was nothing that would get them trashed. It was, like, maybe a little tiny glass of sake. However, huh. I will mention this. They were all, not all, across the board... But a majority of them were methed up as fuck. Oh, uh, I was going to say ketamine or something. <laughs> uh, number one, I didn't know this, but methamphetamine was discovered in Japan in like the late 1800s. Oh, no, Germany and Hitler gets all the reputation for being a meth head and jacking up all of his like troopers and shit. But like I'm, I was under the impression and it's just not talked about that this was actually a thing that was used elsewhere. Like it like, kind of like how LSD was a truth serum essentially, right? Like it was, it was two different types of meth. Uh, the yeah. Germans had a different one. The ones that the Japanese did, they were hopped on pervitin. And it's not used anymore. But essentially, if you think about it, just as Josh said, they still need to fly a plane. They can't be drunken doing that. No. What's worse than a, uh, a bomb that only just drops down in one direction is a drunken bomb that could potentially just go off to fuck all. But this Puritan, however, it not only gave them extreme focus if they ca- like they would use this in cases of severe hunger or um, fatigue for soldiers. This happened on many different fronts. Adderall. Yeah, it's Adderall. It wasn't like they yeah. sm- they they smoked crystal meth. It's like essentially no, primitive. No, it was amphetamines or methamphetamines because they yeah. actually are different. It's methamphetamine specifically. Um, oh, yeah. 
But this stuff, Pervitin, got them super spot focused on what they were doing over a span of almost two days. And also, it increases aggression, which is usually a bad thing for, you know, uh. you know crystal meth users or something. But when you're talking about somebody that's trying to get through a barrage of machine gun fired in order to hit those like, no. as close to the machine guns as it possible, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. So these people were even worse than drunk. They were on like hard fucking drugs. Yeah. Um, and that is essentially what happened with the kamikazes. And... It's tragic on both sides because this is disasters on a level of just human life from both ends. Yeah. And um, the Japanese did some fucked up shit, but consider the fact that they also did fucked up shit to their own people. They use this idea of knowing how much this honor and like love of country would work. And every country yeah, has done so this. that's so dark about this, man. Like, yeah, you're right. Like, it's not unique to Japan. It's just, that's just so sad about this. Like, I hate learning more about this subject, to be honest. No, World War II was not fun and it was not, I, I don't know. I don't think it was the good war, as no. people like to call it. No. Uh, but, so, let's talk about where this rumor came from. I saw the only source uh, in like a scholarly book of the welding ends was from something called the comprehensive book, uh, the comprehensive textbook of suicidology, which was published in the year 2000. And I checked, there were no sources. They just, there were no sources. They just said that they welded them into the plane. However, I did find something very interesting. That was a pretty much pulp magazine from the 1960s. In Stag magazine in October of 1961, a man named Martin Caden published a story called Nishizawa, Japan's Deadliest Combat Pilot, 102 Air Fo- U.S. Air Force Kills. Mm. And in it, there is an excerpt that says, Hiroyoshi Nishizawa did not simply fly his airplane. He became part of the Zero, welded into the fiber of the fighter, an automation which, uh, which functioned, it seemed, like a machine capable of intelligent thought. He was the greatest of all Japanese fighters. So... The wording there, he became part of Zero, welded into the fiber of the fighter. I was going to say. This is in 1961, not very long after World War yeah. I ended, and this was a pulp magazine. This was- World War II. Yeah. It, it was essentially a, it was an embellishment of a story. I don't even know if Nishizawa actually existed, but this is the way they put this, and people will read that and say, oh, he was welded I into gotcha. it. Yeah. The prose yeah. became fat. That's right. the close they can get. This is a source from 1961, but nowhere else, even from the kamikaze's accounts, like the survivors' accounts, they say that anybody was welded into the planes. I think that it came from this potentially. No, that makes a lot of sense if if that's the case. And I had to go through some fucking archives for this shit, but I think <laughs> this may be an origin. If anyone can find anything earlier or something to disprove the fact that even if there was one case of a kamikaze being welded into the plane, please let me know. Because I am very interested in this. I am morbidly interested in it. Um, I usually don't like macabre stuff that much, but this is very interesting to me. Um, Last note before we move on to Josh's last topic. I want to say that the Japanese weren't the only ones that did it. Just as the Nazis weren't the only ones that were mathed up, the Japanese weren't the only ones that had suicide bomber ideas. Guess what? The Nazis had an idea for a suicide squad as well. That does not surprise me. Um, there was a small program called... Wait, are you trying to... Wait, are you insinuating the Nazis had some issues with ethics? Uh, you know what? That You gotta see past the cool-looking uniforms, man. Apparently, they were bad dudes. <laughs> they were the baddies. 
So there was actually a development program for something called the Reichenberg, which was a modified V-1 rocket that was retrofitted to be able to be piloted by a human and used for suicide missions. Oh, crap. I have heard of this. So much that this uh, the woman that started at Reich, she was an Air Force pilot, I think, and she was so adamant and talked to Hitler himself about this. And he eventually let her start the program. She was the first to volunteer for it. Like, that is crazy. She was like, not only do I think we should do this, I think I should be the test subject. But unfortunately, wow. I don't know if I should unfortunately or not. Yeah. But anyway, this program was scrapped and this woman died uh, at the ripe age of like 71 in like the 70s in like Ghana's like training pilot program. It was really weird how she went to that. But now a lot of people, these people escaped. She didn't get to get the blaze of glory that she wanted. She just died of a plain old heart attack. Uh, but no, essentially the Nazis had a plan for this too, but they were using fucking V1 rockets to do this. That's insane. Yeah. Um, so very long and macabre. I'm sorry that I belabored this so much, but Dog, just, I, I jumped good. down this one so much. Um, Josh, do you want to go with other boat failures? <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that's one segue. Uh, <laughs> I've become very nuanced through my years of podcasting. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, that's good. Okay. Season uh, eight. Yeah. Colon, the nuance. Yeah. For reals. So, rounding us out in this episode, because I almost timestamped it again, it is a problem and almost a borderline sickness at this point. On this but 9-11. Hey, you didn't do it tonight. Anyway. Uh, wait, you just did it, Greg. Fuck! <laughs> it's oh, the last horse crossed the finish line. It took me a second. Okay. <laughs> now, I'm going to be talking about specifically the Titanic. And I don't, I'm going to be like full disclosure here. I didn't really get into what the Titanic is because I'm assuming at this point, literally every person listening to this podcast knows what happened to the Titanic. Uh, I'm looking at the show notes right now, Josh. Why do you have only one source and it's a movie from 19, what's going on here? Oh, it's a very famous documentary. Yes. (laughs) I hate you both. I hate that movie, by the way. I do not like James Cameron at all. At all. I mean, have you seen Aliens, dude? Aliens was good. Hot take here, guys. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so there's something about this I want to talk about before I really get into the nitty gritty of what actually went on with the Titanic sinking. So what's the topic? Um, so what I'm going to be talking about is, thank you, Ryan, give me on the rails. That's not what I want to go, but I know there's a there's a friendship boat joke in there and I don't want to go through that. Uh, the Titanic <laughs> musicians and engineers stayed on the boat as it was sinking. That's the myth anyway. As seen in the documentary Titanic by James Cameron. Yes. R.I.P. Leo. There was room on that board as well. Rose, you bitch. So before we jump into the topic at hand. (laughs) Did he take that submersible down to the bottom of the Mariano's Trench? Actually, it wasn't the bottom, but did he take it down that far just to find the jewel? I'm sure he did. He went down there. He went down there and he went, I told you so. (laughs) And he... (laughs) He just went, no one will ever believe you and let it no go. No one will ever believe you. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about something here that I find really fascinating about this. So these people, I'm talking about the engineers and the musicians, okay? They are idolized. Uh, they have memorials in their honor, as they should if this is true. And the thing that I find so fascinating about this is that this is such a big topic to cover and how we view these people with the Titanic sinking 
is just it's so fascinating. And, uh, does this tie back to honor a little bit? Yeah, it, it, that's exactly what it is. Um, and it's also for the greater good of everyone, all for one and one good. for all. Right. It, it goes back to that notion we were talking about in your topic, Ryan. And when you think about heroic acts, okay, and specifically heroic acts of historical figures, it's usually something on such a large scale. The Alamo, um, Custer's Last Stand. Stealing the Declaration of Independence. I couldn't help myself. I mean, um, so another documentary. Okay. <laughs> yeah, documentary if you had just, heavy show. You should have just said the Alamo again so you can prove that you never forgot it. <laughs> but. <laughs> that's good, Ryan. Man, that's good. Um, and so it usually ends with a death or some major impact upon history and leaves us um, in awe and could have potentially altered the course of human history in some capacity, you know, in some way, shape, or form. But that's not true in this case right here we have people that were a part of a ship who felt a sense of pride and a sense of duty accomplishment and a sense oh i was gonna say of uh, a sense of accomplishment because the titanic itself was such a massive accomplishment i mean attached to themselves right i mean the titanic itself is such a huge feat in human history because i mean you got to think about it before that before the titanic the ships we were really talking about were like the nina the penta the santa maria and the mayflower I mean, really, those were the ships that had such a piece of history. Um, And then now there's the Titanic because it was such a modern marvel of what it could be. Anyway, my point being here is that while allegedly while the ship is going down, these people stayed on to keep playing music and keep the engines going on a broken ship. Okay, and that that to me, it's it's poetic and it's like really heartwarming i don't know i just i felt very attached to this as i was was going through this well, it gives you like hope josh makes you like it's like the the humans being bros type deal just very sad ending number one i'm angry at your non-mention of the merrimack and the monitor but um let's go ahead and say that uh the weird thing to me about this is we talked about the japanese zeros and like the kamikaze pilots with everybody you know going down and like as a national honor thing, doing everything they can for their country. Call me not an honorable person, but I don't see myself in a situation, even if like I had invented the first fucking UFO in existence and it actually works. Going down with it is just like a human having this thing of saying, I really like this piece of metal. I don't want this piece of metal to, you know, not be around. If it's not going to be around, I want to be not around with it. Now, <laughs> I, I, now I do have a theory. Is, is, is this specifically referring to the captain going down at the ship? So, yeah, I, I mean, that's the trope that we've no, all so, heard. So, well, right. I think my my theory, my theory has always been it's we've romanticized it, but I think it's actually very practical. It's that the captain knows the ship and he could he or I mean, I would say he or she, but let's be real uh, at this time. All ship captains are men. Um, the my my knee jerk reaction is that they would. I'm gonna let you bury yourself in that one. <laughs> I mean, dude, we're talking 1907. Oh, you said at this time. I thought you meant at this time is in like 2019. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> we're talking about fucking Titanic. So anyway, the the point being that it's um, I I think that a captain at that time. There's a, you know, ships are complicated. And so on my thought process is, well, they're gonna be able to buy precious time. And so that's kind of the way I view it as well. But yeah, also, they, they, like more people will survive with their self-sacrifice and they, it, it, yeah, there's the accountability, ownership of the mistake or situation, whatever. 
But I think a lot of it has to do with like on a very practical level. It's like the captain, if they can run like an organized evacuation or say it's hopeless, like they can just do more to save more lives than Well, it's not they can person. drive the fucking boat anymore. That's no, but like they know fair. the ship though. They know it though. They know the ship. Yeah, okay. I'll give them that altruistic bit. Just this I, way I I'm not it, a boat captain. I, can't, I think it comes from a practical thing that became justified by people who didn't want to go down with the ship but wanted the captain to save them. Anyway. So, <laughs> Josh, I, I know we really need to get onto this topic, but I'm just going to ask Sorry. one last thing. <laughs> okay. Greg mentioned this is more of a season one type of episode, so I have to bring it up. Uh oh. If one of the friendship boats went off the rails, <laughs> what am I going to do? Yeah, I'm the first one off the motherfucker. I'm going first. Save yourselves. See what I'm saying? <laughs> um, You're in the middle of the lagoon in Epcot, just like waving to people as it's going down. Not oh, my boat, shit. not my problem. That's what I say. Oh, shit. The pond's only seven feet deep. Oh, I just landed on a fireworks platform. I'm okay. You're on your own. You can stand. Keep oh, it moving. Shit. Oh, I fucking love it. All right. I love anyway. It. Um... Back to the topic at hand here. So <laughs> does does this myth hold water? Oh. Don't act like you didn't plan for that shit. No, I did not. I, I mean, know. I made the joke about something about the ground with the kamikaze. I mean, like, let's. Yeah. Ah, forgive me, father. Whatever. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to actually I'm going to break this into two separate things, one with the musicians and one with the engineers. So when the ship started to go down. The band, mem- the band members gathered in the first class lounge to play songs to keep the passengers calm. Fucking bourgeoisie. Well, yes, that was my first thought as well. What I didn't know is that there wasn't just one band. There was two bands. There was a... They had a battle of the bands on there? <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry. I'm being so irreverent. Can we call this disaster myths battle of the bands? Because I'm okay with it. Um, there were so there was eight total musicians on board, compro- com- composed, <laughs> composed of two separate bands. There was a three pre- three piece ensemble and a five piece ensemble. Oh, so Titanic is full of shit already. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! So uh, once things started to get really bleak, though, they actually moved the band members themselves. They moved from the first class lounge to the front of the ships. I'm sorry, to the front of the ship, excuse me, where they stayed until the demise of the RMS Titanic. Um, three of the band members' bodies were actually recovered and found in the water, but the other five are still missing to this day. Oh. So all eight of them did go down with the ship. God damn. Okay. I can understand the captain, but... So that, I, and I, that's I guess, and that's I what I find. I, I get the whole thing. They're trying to comfort people, but I I get it too. And there's a there's actually a huge, huge, huge debate that I'm not getting into because there is a lot of speculation what their last song was. Um, and there's oh. con- and there's conflicting accounts of what it actually is. Um, what are the front runners? Uh, so the one that everybody talks about is. It's uh, it's actually called Near My God to Thee is what they believe the last song was. That's fucking dark. So part of the problem becomes because the Titanic was sailing from the United Kingdom over to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's two different versions of this song. One is a British version and one is an American version. And they're very different. 
So what version they were playing depends on what person heard it and relayed it, and the version they were playing might have been different than the version that they know. Maybe you only hear a different song depending on what your nationality is. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Um, but but the the general consensus is that the last song played was nearer to the my God. Uh, that's what a, a lot has been written about and a lot of people believe nearer my God to the excuse me. So anyway, um, that's not what I want to get into because I do also find that fascinating. There's an, the other song I um, I listen to. It, they're, they're very beautiful songs. Um, I will see if I can find them and put them in, my, in the show notes if anybody wants to check them out. But I find it really interesting that the that one of the biggest things talked about with this is the actual last song that they played. Um, and it's hard because you have to get eyewitness accounts and then there wasn't a whole lot of eyewitness, eyewitness accounts. So anyway, the engineering side here, this this to me is the more fascinating aspect of it. Um, it's also not the happiest ending. Now, to get into a little bit of the backstory, the engineers were responsible for keeping the engines, the generators, and other mechanical equipment running. And interestingly enough, these were the highest paid members of the crew due to their education and technical knowledge uh, for maintaining and repairing the ship. Quick question. Sure. Were all the engineers in the hull? No. Oh, okay. No. Okay. That, that, that's the one question I wanted to hear, pretty much. Because um, I was going to say, I don't think it was a choice if they could stay on or not if they were in the fucking hull of the boat. No. Um... I mean, Which is the bottom of the boat that's underwater, pretty much. If anybody is not no, familiar, so I'm I'm gonna get into that. I'm I'll just I'm gonna get into that. I know nothing about this. So when this the ship struck the iceberg, there were two members of the crew that were actually in the number six boiler room. Okay, now what most people don't know is that the ship had a fire in the boiler room, like right when they first started sailing. And um, it was a whole big mess and they were trying to track down the fire. And these two engineers were actually double checking inside uh, boiler room number six to make sure the fire hadn't spread. Cue the iceberg. It hits. They actually managed to escape by running through the connecting tunnel to the number five boiler room, sealing off boiler room number six. Okay. Want to put out the fire, right? Well, that was one way, I guess, to make sure the fire was out. Yes. Now, the real heartbreaking aspect here was that many crew members stayed below deck. A lot of them were in the hull, but not all of them. But a lot of them. I, but when you you asked if all of them, no, not all of them, but most of them were. Um, they stayed below deck to keep the engines running and the steam to the boilers to keep the ship afloat. Now, for those of you who don't know, because this is kind of my niche area of, of what I do. Boilers, you need to keep them running. They are very hot. I don't think that's any news to anybody, but they run so hot that when exposed to a heavy change in pressure, it also causes a heavy change in temperature. So it'll explode probably. That's exactly what happens. Temperature's pressure, pressure's temperature. Mm -hmm. When it hits the water, it's going to create an explosion. So they kept them running to keep the ship afloat basically to make sure that the lifeboats were able to get off and some people were able to be saved. Yeah, as an example, this is not exactly related, but in terms of the, the temperature versus pressure thing, as like the fluctuation rather, is like yeah. when you have something so hot or something so cold, uh, while they say not to throw hot water on like a car windshield right? when it's like iced over, not that we ever have that problem here ever, um, but when it's iced over, you can Crack shatter the windshield, the windshield if, you, if you throw on too hot of water. Right. And um, so to prevent this, these boilers from exploding, many crew members worked until the final, they, it was the, there was an actual number, the final two moments of their life to make sure the ship, before the ship gave way, and uh, they allowed people to get on the lifeboats and escape. It is estimated they delayed the sinking for over an hour in order to have the lifeboats launch. 
Jesus. An hour. That's that crazy. Way, absolutely insane. Um, uh, they're the real heroes, right? Well, I, I mean, I'm say, sure a lot of people uh, are. I mean, Jesus. And so, Good guys. I, I, <laughs> and I kind of want to break down what the composition was of these people that stayed in the hall. So Please. there was 25 engineers as well as eight electricians and two boilermakers. They were all gone. They all passed away. They didn't make it out. There was 13 leading firemen and 163 regular firemen. Okay. So your leading firemen. Um, the ship had 29 boilers, each containing three furnaces for a total of 159 furnaces. Each fireman was assigned one boiler and three furnaces. Of the Titanic's six boiler rooms, each leading fireman was assigned to two of them with 10 to 15 firemen underneath them. So they, they had, by having so many, they were able to keep doing these shifts okay. because you had to keep this going at all times. This wasn't like, a oh, I'm off on the weekends. This is a, you have a rotating schedule. This is shift work. Exact, that's exactly what it is. Um, next to each boiler was a coal chute that deposited... Uh, coal from the overhead coal bunkers and a fireman with a shovel who would consistently who constantly excuse me feed coal into the three furnaces and there was so there was shifts for every fireman and it was four hours on eight hours off all day all night that's how it went the heat in the boiler rooms usually exceeded 120 degrees fahrenheit so and that's not dry heat either no 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 so a four-hour shift was very demanding and of the firemen, a fucking four minute shift is demanding. Oh, dude, they did this for four hours. So I know that's it's insane. insane. It's incredible. So of the firemen, only three leading firemen and around 45 of them survived. That's it. <sighs> now, here's what I just said. It gets to be 120 degrees in there, right? Most of them only worked in like shorts and a T-shirt. OK, because they didn't want to kill themselves. So of these, how many did? Uh, so of these, these firemen that survived. Um, three leading firemen and 45 regular firemen, so 48 of them, they were in shorts and a t-shirt getting into sh- and getting to water that was 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so it wasn't a good time. And now we've covered this in Rumor Flies before. The water can be 28 degrees Fahrenheit because of the salt content in the water. There we go. So there were 73 trimmers, which is uh, a coal trimmer. Basically, the trimmers... These were the low men on the totem pole. They were paid the least and had the worst job of the crew. They basically worked inside the coal bunkers and that fed the coal to the firemen who would then feed it into the furnace. Um, It wasn't a very sexy job, but basically the people that did this were just trying to get to New York to start a new life. It ain't much, but it's honest work. That's exactly what it is. Uh. Um, And they were in terrible working conditions. There was coal dust everywhere. It was dark. All the residual heat from the boilers rose up into the coal bunkers and inside, and the bunkers were poorly lit. Um, And it was just extremely hot, and only about 20 of them survived. There were 73 of them. Dog, that shit was lit. There was sorry. 33. I couldn't, there, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. This is there was, actually a very there like, was, serious and good subject. <laughs> there was 33 greasers. These men, they worked in the turbine and reciprocating engine rooms alongside the engineers. And they were responsible for maintaining and supplying oil and lubricants to all the mechanical, mechanical equipment. Of the 33, only four survived. And there was six mess hall stewards. And they worked with the crew's kitchen to cook and serve food for the crew. Um, and four of them served the engineering, served the engineering crew themselves. Uh, to serve the deck crew, and just one of them survived. So just a fraction of the whole uh, in total of the crew members were, of, of the engineering side were able to survive. Um, they, a lot of these uh, men, because like Greg said, let's be honest, these were all men. A lot of these men gave their lives to make sure that more of these women and children could get away inside these lifeboats. 
Um, and they were all heroes. I mean, they have memorial m- memorials, excuse me, um, dedicated to them in, in the United Kingdom. I believe it's in Southampton. I have to double check. I should have wrote it in my notes in the show notes. Um, so if you want to check that out, it's there. But uh, they actually had to rebuild one of them because of some of the bombings during World War II. Oh. And um, they did. They, they rebuilt it, and they, I think they had one reopened in 1990. They refurbished it, and it's absolutely beautiful from all the pictures. Uh, but And kind of going back to the last song, that's the other thing I, I meant to say earlier about the musicians. Um, the They have that specific song, Closer, uh, My God, to Thee, uh, in the memorial. as they, they pretty much just gravitated towards that as their last song they they have that for the memorial so they have some of the notes up there and it's it's really nice Jeez, and um i so. feel bad about every joke i've made about this so far so uh damn yeah i mean look i know it's a little bit somber um and it's not the uh, most uplifting or, or exciting topic but yeah so to to kind of round it out um the- i wish we had started the opposite way around with our topics. When we were discussing how to do this, you mentioned the meteorite and um, and your first topic, and I was like, okay, I guess no, we're going to end on a but bummer. But honestly, we don't get a whole lot of reverent topics like this that like all three of us, I mean, we've cracked a few jokes, but honestly, all three of us are just kind of like, wow, that's incredible. I, I don't know. We don't get a whole lot of these moments. I'm, yeah, I'm okay I, I refrain this. from making like three greaser jokes, by the way, so <laughs> you're welcome. Um, you refrain I, I from making, that. You refrain from making three, but you did slip in one Uh, so of to say all the musicians on the titanic died uh, that is absolutely true there was eight of them and none of them made it out and uh, to say that the engineers uh died as well you that is technically semantically it is no because not all of them died but a lot of them gave their lives to ensure that more people got to safety um thank you titanic engineers and musicians and cap the captain died too right the captain did die yes. okay okay uh i will say um i have gone to the titanic museum in florida i believe it's in orlando um and it was really cool i enjoyed it they had some like recreation of the stairs and the dining hall and they had like all kind of interesting facts i was a kid when i went and i was nowhere near in the history that i like i am now and i enjoyed the hell out of it so if you get a chance to go where you know Florida's a big place. Uh, it's by Orlando. Okay. Uh, okay. I'll I'll look that up next time in Orlando. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we do the closing plugs? Jesus, I feel like I just need to. What the hell? What are we talking about? Uh, look up Yucatan Dan. See if he's a person. <laughs> uh, bring it back. Uh, and then yeah, Yucatan Dan's the new guy, Senior Yucatan Dan. So we have to figure that one out. Uh, anyway, Greg, how can people find us? You can find us at rumorfliespodcast.com, at rumorflies on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook.com slash rumorflies. We also have the rumor mill. I don't think it has a really good URL that's possible memorizing. Maybe I'll do it for fun. But the rumor mill, where it's a lot more interactive and uh, it's a lot it's of fun on discussions. Facebook, huh? Indeed. Sorry, yes, it is a Facebook page so we discovered there's groups and pages and they work differently but i don't anyway. know how any of that works or functions yeah I, I i learn it and then it just doesn't stick facebook's so, for boomers we like rumor <laughs> mill though because it makes it that when you post it's actually like a post it's not like the facebook pages or groups or whatever where only when we post it's information where it's very one-sided so come right, join the rumor mill on facebook yeah. it's super discussion based we talk about all kinds of random shit it's a ton of fun um, yeah. And then, of course, we're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, you name it, we're probably on it. So uh, come check us out. 
listen, please consider reviewing and check us out on Threadless. We have a store on Threadless. Threadless. Was it Threadless.rumorflies.com? I don't remember. Threadless, you'll find us. And of course, last but not least, Patreon.com slash Rumorflies, where you can donate to the show. You can get all kinds of fun bonus content. We're everywhere, folks. Just Google Rumor Flies. You'll find us. Okay. Well, for this episode of Rumor <laughs> Flies, I'm Ryan. I'm Josh. And I'm Greg, not Ryan. Bye. Bye.